Well, let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to uh, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter uh, 20 for our time of study in the Word this morning. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, and the title of the message is The Great White Throne uh, Judgment. Today is uh, December the 12th, uh, right in the middle of the Christmas season, a season that one songwriter describes as the most wonderful time of the year. And another songwriter uh, describes as the season to be jolly and to don our happy apparel. Uh, Yet here I am as your pastor in the middle of this season coming back to our series through the book of Revelation and preaching a sermon on the great white throne judgment of God, a judgment in which the sinful dead receive their final judgment from God and are cast into the lake of fire. And you might think that such a topic is not befitting to the Christmas season. And if you think that, you really ought to take some time to read Mary, the mother of Jesus, hymn of praise to God in Luke chapter 1, after she discovers that she carries in her womb the Christ child. In her hymn of praise, she says many positive things, but mixed in among those positive things are words of judgment. Yes, she says things like, his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. But she also says things like, and I quote, he, God, has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has taken down rulers from their thrones and sent away the rich empty-handed, unquote. Imagine those words on a Christmas card. A couple weeks ago, a man named Michael Bird tweeted that someone needs to rewrite the lyrics to the song, Mary, Did You Know?, and use some of Mary's own words that we find in Luke chapter 1. Michael Bird suggests a couple of the lines could go something like this. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day smash the mighty? Mary, did you know that the child you bear will humble all the haughty? Those kinds of lyrics would actually be appropriate and perfectly befitting to the things that Mary actually says in Luke chapter 1. So taking our cues from Mary, the mother of Jesus, judgment does belong in our thoughts during this time of year. And if the reality of God's judgment did find a place in your thoughts Today and this season, it just might make your Christmas season more meaningful, actually. As we have studied through Revelation, we have seen the rise of the Antichrist and his false prophet. We have seen God unleash judgments upon the world through the seven seals of 
judgment and then through the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of God's wrath. We have seen the armies of the world gather in Megiddo for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. In Revelation 19, we witnessed the second coming of Jesus Christ and saw him strike down the armies that had gathered against him. We then saw how the beast and his false prophet were taken and cast into the lake of fire. As for Satan, we saw that he was bound for a period of a thousand years. We then saw how Christ establishes his kingdom upon the earth and reigns upon the earth for a thousand years. We saw in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, take a look at that verse, how the souls of those who refused to worship the beast, quote, came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, unquote. Regarding this particular resurrection, John tells us at the end of verse 5 that this is the first resurrection, which implies a second. Then in verse 6, John says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. At the beginning of verse 5, John speaks of another resurrection that comes later, and he says, the rest of the dead, speaking of the wicked dead, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And this is the resurrection that we will witness in our passage today. At the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth, we saw how Satan is loosed and allowed to lead a multitude of people in rebellion against Christ. We then saw how God defeats this rebel multitude with fire from heaven and then has Satan thrown into the lake of fire. In verse 10, look at what it says. John says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Just from the language that John uses here in verse 10, we see that the lake of fire is not a place where someone just gets burned up and ceases to exist, but a place where they are tormented day and night forever and ever. And we come this morning to what happens next, which is essentially the second resurrection pointed to back in verse 5 the resurrection of the wicked dead who will truly be hurt by the second death, as we're going to see. I warn you in advance that this passage is sobering. It is difficult. It is what some writers call the most tragic passage in all of the Bible. And they're right. And in this passage today, we're going to observe three stunning developments, three stunning developments in John's vision 
of the final judgment of the sinful dead. Three stunning developments in John's vision of the final judgment of the sinful dead. Number one, John sees God as judge seated on a white throne, a great white throne. John sees God as judge seated on a great white throne. Observe what catches John's eye right away as this vision is put before him. In verse 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. This is a throne, which means that the judge seated on this throne has absolute authority to do as he pleases. John tells us that this throne is white, meaning that the judgments that issue from this throne are absolutely righteous and pure in every way. This throne is also said to be great, telling us that it is an imposing sight that takes John's breath away, a throne that is worthy of the one who sits upon it, greater than any throne of any man throughout history, of any king. Speaking of this one who sits upon the throne, John doesn't just see this great white throne, but he also sees him who sat upon it. Commentators are divided on who this is who is seated upon the throne. Some say it is Jesus Christ, based on statements like what Jesus makes in John chapter 5 and verse 22, when Jesus says, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. There's other passages like this. So some believe this is Jesus seated on this great white throne. Other commentators say that this is God the Father on this throne, which would be consistent with John's language throughout the book of Revelation. Either way that you might choose to understand this, this is the triune God upon the throne. And the judgment that is about to commence perfectly expresses the will of every member of the triune Godhead. With God seated upon his throne, the court is now in session, and the judgment of the unsaved dead is about to commence. Let me read verse 11 in its entirety, and notice the response of all creation to the appearance of this great white throne and the judge who sits upon it. John says in verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence, literally from whose face, earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. We have seen harbingers of this event leading up to this passage as we have studied Revelation, back in Revelation 6, verse 14, when the sixth seal was opened, we were told that the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then in verses 15 
through 17, John tells us that people were hiding themselves. This is back in Revelation 6, 15 and 17 through 17. And John tells us that people were hiding themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face, literally, the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand And then in Revelation 16, the final bowl of God's wrath is poured out upon the earth. And we're told in Revelation 16, 20, that every island fled away and the mountains were not found. What's becoming gradually obvious is that if rebel man prefers to have mountains to hide beneath in order to hide from the face of God and from his wrath, then God will remove even those mountains, leaving man with no place to hide from him. And then here in Revelation 20, verse 11, the passage we're looking at right now, John speaks of God from whose face earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Leon Morris says that John's language here may be poetic imagery expressing the fear of the corruptible in the presence of God. In its flight, he says, from the presence of God, no place is found for the terrified universe. And I think Morris is onto something, and I also think this poetic language is describing something real that happens at this moment in time. Just five verses beyond what John is saying right here in verse 11, John is going to tell us about seeing a new heaven and a new earth, which makes it likely that here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, that he's telling us what happens to the old heaven and the old earth. You can write this reference down in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. Peter speaks of a day that is coming when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And it seems that this is that moment God is revealed on this great white throne, and from the face of God, the earth and the heaven flee away with no place found for them any longer. In Psalm 139, the psalmist entertains the idea of running away from God and trying to flee from the face of God, and he thinks about hiding in the heavens or hiding under the ground on earth, or hiding in the remotest part of the sea to get away from God. But here in Revelation 20 verse 11, we see that even the heavens and the earth will one day themselves flee and leave wicked mankind with nowhere to hide from the judgment of God Almighty, which leads us to the second thing 
that John sees, the second stunning development in John's vision of the judgment of the sinful dead. Number two, John sees the wicked dead being judged according to their deeds. John sees the wicked dead being judged according to their deeds. John turns his eyes from the throne of God and observes the throng of people who are standing in this royal courtroom. And he says in verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Though the heavens and the earth will flee from the one who sits upon this throne, the sinful dead evidently will not be able to flee. They will realize that even death was no escape from this one who sits upon the throne. For here they are on the other side of having died, standing consciously before God's throne. Christopher Hitchens despise the Christian doctrine of God and the concept of being judged by him. On one occasion, Hitchens spoke these words, religion is the desire that there be an unalterable, unchallengeable authority who can subject you to total surveillance around the clock, every waking and sleeping minute of your life before you're born and even worse, after you're dead. Who wants this to be true? Who but a slave desires such a, such a ghastly fate? Unquote. And yet one day, this ghastly fate will be his along with all those who rebelled against the living God without repentance and faith in Christ. If you refuse to look to Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and your strong tower of refuge, this passage that we're looking at today describes an appointment that you have with God. John says in verse 12, and I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne. It's a remarkable thing as I read these words that these sinful dead are standing before the throne rather than bowing. Perhaps they would have preferred to bow and to hide their faces or more likely to just flee like the heavens and the earth did, but they will not be able to do so on this occasion. They must stand and face this judge who sits upon this great white throne. Those who are standing are described simply as the dead, meaning that they are dead both physically and spiritually. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 16, Paul speaks of the dead in Christ. But these here in Revelation 20 are the dead outside of Christ, whose names, as we're going to find out in verse 15, are not written in the book of life. John tells us that these who are standing are the great and the small, 
The point of John's language here is to teach us that everybody, without exception, will stand before God. No one will be so important as to be immune from God's judgment, and no one will be so unimportant as to make judgment inappropriate. Everyone, the small and the great, will stand before God, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak, those from first world countries and those from third world countries, those who reigned as kings over empires and those who labored as slaves, those who oppressed others and those who were oppressed, everyone, the great and the small, will be brought before the throne of God on this day and have to stand before God and face him as their judge. And as they're all standing before God, who sits upon the great white throne, John observes something happening as verse 12 unfolds. He says, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. It is evident from what follows that there are two categories of books here. There is the book of life, which has the names of all the saved written in it, as we're going to see. And then there are the other books, plural, that have record of all the deeds that each of these persons standing before God have done. It's as if a heavenly angelic scribe has been assigned to watch each person's life and write down the deeds they did every single day of their life. And it is now that the books holding the record of each person's deeds are opened in the very presence of this God who sits upon the great white throne. Imagine what this moment will be for those who are standing in the presence of of this one whose face is so glorious that even the heavens and the earth fled away from it. And yet these wicked, unrepentant dead are forced to survive and stand before this God and in his presence have books opened containing the record of their every deed throughout their life. Imagine yourself standing before God in this moment and you see the books being brought out and opened which contain the absolutely accurate representation of every one of your mental deeds and verbal deeds and the deeds you physically carried out into observable action throughout the entirety of your life. And imagine not having Jesus to serve as your advocate on that day. This will be the fate of all those who do not call upon the name of Jesus for salvation. Observe what happens to those who stand before the throne once the books are opened. In the second half of verse 12, John says, And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. 
The language John uses here is what helps us to know that these books contain record of the deeds that these wicked dead have done because John here tells us two things that are synonymous. Number one, that the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books. And number two, that the dead were judged according to their deeds. And these two descriptions side by side tell us that the things written in the books are the deeds that they did. And the word judged here could be translated as condemned. At the very least, it speaks of unflinching scrutiny and then a verdict of guilty and a sentence of condemnation that is according to their deeds. Now, notice what John does beginning in verse 13. In, in typical Hebrew style, John recapitulates and restates things in a slightly different way, primarily to gather up everything he wants us to know and to make sure we understand every nuance of what is happening on this occasion. In verse 13, he says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Again, John is not speaking sequentially but he's backtracking and restating things to communicate the truth more fully to us, letting us know that before the heavens and the earth are destroyed, the sea gives up those who had died in the sea. In all likelihood, the sea is being mentioned here to reinforce to us that nobody will escape God's judgment, not even those whose bodies were lost at sea, will escape this resurrection unto judgment. John also tells us that death will give up the dead. Such language lets us know that death will not only give up the dead bodies of those who died at sea, but also the dead bodies of all those who died and are buried on the land and were given a proper burial. The thing to keep in mind here is that the sea and death are giving up the bodies of all those non-believers who've died throughout human history, who were not raised in the resurrection of the righteous spoken about earlier here in chapter 20. But what's interesting is that not only will the bodies of the dead, the wicked dead, be given up, but John tells us that Hades will also give up the dead that were in it. According to the New Testament, Hades is a holding tank, as it were, for departed spirits, the departed spirits of the damned. It's a place of torment for the souls of those who are damned. We see that this is so from Jesus in Luke chapter 16 when the rich man dies and he wakes up in Hades being tormented in its flames. And John is telling us here that Hades will give up the souls that have been held in Hades until 
this moment of judgment. So to put all this together, John is telling us that death and the sea will essentially give up the bodies of the dead, and Hades will give up the souls of the dead, and such language indicates that the unbelieving dead will experience a physical resurrection, a reuniting of their souls and bodies, and stand before the throne of God on this occasion in resurrection bodies that are prepared for judgment. Does it seem weird to you to think of the sinful dead as experiencing a physical resurrection? It shouldn't. You can write this reference down in John chapter 5, in verses 28 through 29. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. In Acts chapter 24, in verse 15, the Apostle Paul states, and I quote, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, unquote. And this is what is happening here. Death and Hades are giving up the bodies and the souls of the wicked dead so that they can now be brought before God for judgment as physically embodied beings with bodies prepared for the judgment that awaits them. As John witnesses this scene here in verse 13, he says, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. And notice the phrase, every one of them. Each person will be judged as an individual before God and will bear the eternal weight of responsibility for their choices and their deeds. And John says here that they will be judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. In verse 15, we will see that those in this judgment are the unsaved dead who will be thrown into the lake of fire since their names are not found written in the book of life. So that's the verdict that will fall upon them all. However, evidently from the language here, there is still a sense in which they will be judged according to their deeds. And each person will receive a fate of a particular level of judgment that is appropriate to their deeds. Christ alerts us to the fact that there will be varying degrees of suffering for the damned. And he does so in a passage like Matthew 11 and verse 23 and following. Just to give you one example, Jesus speaks to the residents of Capernaum which had largely rejected him. And he says to them in Matthew eleven twenty three, and you, Capernaum, will you not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. 
Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. This language by Jesus makes it clear that the suffering of the people of Capernaum will be greater than the suffering of the wicked residents of Sodom. The residents of both cities will suffer eternally under the judgment of God, but one will suffer more severe punishment than the other because they were exposed to greater light, yet rejected that light. What such language indicates is what we all observe to be true. Some people do worse deeds than others. Some do a greater number of evil deeds than others. Some people sin against more light from God than others. Consequently, the fate of all the wicked is that they will be eternally judged by God, but their level of suffering, their level of judgment will be according to their deeds as they are found written in these books that are opened at the great white throne judgment of God. John continues watching as this vision unfolds and he sees something happening after death and Hades give up the dead which are in them. And this leads us to the third stunning development in John's vision of the judgment of the sinful dead. Number three, John sees death and Hades and persons being thrown into the lake of fire. John sees death and Hades and persons being thrown into the lake of fire. Observe what John sees happening in verse 14. He says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. John has already told us that death and Hades have given up their dead, but now he tells us that death and Hades themselves will be thrown into the lake of fire. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, that the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And here we see this moment arrives when the angel of death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. As for Hades, we've already observed that Hades is the abode of the departed spirits of the damned. And here we're told that Hades itself will be thrown into the lake of fire for God has no use for it any longer. So just in the last 16 verses of the book of Revelation, we've seen that the beast, the Antichrist, and his false prophet have been thrown into the lake of fire. We've seen Satan being thrown into the lake of fire, and now death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is good news. Amen? And it's all a part of God's process of making all things new for his people. And all of this is happening in these passages because Jesus Christ came into the world 2,000 years ago as a little baby. And he grew up 
to live a perfect life and fulfill all righteousness and then died and shed his blood on the cross for our sins, showing himself worthy to open the scroll or the book of human destiny and bring history to this critical moment that we are studying this morning, right on the cusp of the new heavens and the new earth that we will see unfolding in the next chapter. Speaking of the lake of fire at the end of verse 14, John says this is the second death, the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. In other words, the first death is what we all know, physical death. The lake of fire is the second death. Back in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, just earlier in this chapter, John says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you will be resurrected in the first resurrection. And over these, John says, the second death has no power. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, John speaks, or Jesus speaks of his people who overcome through him. And he says, and I quote, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What Jesus is saying is that those who become overcomers by faith in him will not have so much as a single hair of their resurrection bodies singed by a single blast of heat emanating from the lake of fire. They may experience the first death, which is physical death, but they will not be touched even by the second death, which is the lake of fire, where a person will be separated from the goodness and the love and the grace and the mercy of God forever. Which brings us to verse 15, which is the most tragic verse in the Bible. You know, it's one thing for Satan to be thrown into the lake of fire. It's one thing for death and Hades to be thrown into the lake of fire and for the beast and the false prophet to be hurled into the lake of fire. But in verse 15, John says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Notice at this point that it's not people's deeds that are determining where they are cast. What determines where they are cast is the fact that their names were not written in the book of life. And don't be tripped up by John's use of the word if here in verse 15. We can paraphrase John as saying, since the name of each person at this judgment was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All these men and women the great and the small involved in this resurrection and in this judgment will receive this fate. 
And by the way, you, you hear people say sometimes that God will not send anyone to hell. They will go there willingly. Sometimes you hear people say that. The language of verse 15 here would kind of suggest otherwise. The sinful dead will not walk willingly into the lake of fire. John says they will be thrown into the lake of fire. They will certainly have no desire to be in heaven with God, but they will not want to be in the lake of fire either. But this is where they will be cast and where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever under the justice of God the Almighty. And why are they cast into the lake of fire? John tells us that it is because their names are not written in the book of life. Who are those whose names are not written in the book of life? Well, the Bible gives us an answer to that question. John tells us here in verse 15 that all those whose names are not written in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. If you go over to Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, John describes these people and he says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So there you have it. Those whose names are not written in the book of life are the cowardly, those who are too cowardly to believe in Jesus Christ and to identify with him. They are the ones who engaged in abominable deeds without repentance. They engaged in murder and immorality in their thoughts and in their actions without repentance. They engaged in witchcraft and idolatry. And they lied without repentance. Back in Revelation 13, 8, John tells us that when the Antichrist arises, he says, and all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast, everyone whose names or whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. What this language indicates and reveals is that the book of life contains the names of those whom God has chosen to save from before the foundation of the world. And people will manifest by their choices and by their actions whether their names are written in that book. In contrast to these people whose names are not written in the book of life, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus says, He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. In other words, from what Jesus is saying here, the overcomer's name is in the book of life and his name will never be erased from there. Well, how does one become an overcomer? 
and thereby manifests that his name or her name is in the book of life. Well, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, John says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And he then says in verse 5, And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So at the end of the day, the thing you should want to know more than anything else is whether your name is written in the book of life. And the way to know that is to consider whether you are believing in Jesus to save you from your sins or not. If you are believing in Jesus, if you have called upon his name for salvation You put your trust in him, having repented of your sins, then you have thereby manifested that your name is written in the book of life, and you have much to rejoice in. If you have not believed in Jesus, I plead with you to believe in him today. Call upon his name for salvation, and he will be pleasured to forgive you and to save you, and to make you God's child, and to turn you from being a child of wrath into being a citizen in the kingdom of God. And you, by faith in Jesus, will overcome and thereby reveal that your name is truly written in the book of life, and you will, even on this day, have much to rejoice in also. But as we wrap things up this morning, maybe, maybe you're not in a rejoicing mood after a message like this. As we've worked through our passage today, maybe you're asking, how could a loving God do this? How could a loving God send people to the lake of fire? Well, if you really understand the holiness of God and the gravity and the awfulness of sinning against this holy God, you would be asking, how in the world can a holy God bring himself to allow anyone into heaven? That's the truly baffling thing that the Bible takes a lot of time to explain. You say, well, I still want to know, how could a loving God send or cast people into the lake of fire? Well, the answer is, Quite simple, God casts the unrepentant wicked into the lake of fire precisely because he is a God of love who loves certain things far more than we can even imagine. God loves righteousness so much that he casts the unrighteous into the lake of fire. God loves his people so much that he judges forever those who oppress and persecute and slay his people without repentance. God loves his son, Jesus Christ, so much that he damns forever those who reject his son without repentance. 
anyone looking at the lake of fire and seeing who will be cast into the lake of fire should think to themselves, wow, whoever created this place and sent these particular people into this place must really love righteousness, must really love his own people, and must really love Jesus Christ so much that he would banish these unrepentantly unrighteous oppressors of his people and rejecters of Christ to this awful place. Also, thinking about God's love, part of why God banishes the wicked to the lake of fire in our passage is so that they can never bring any hurt or harm to any one of God's people ever again. This lake of fire is the eternal prison of the wicked from which they will never be able to escape and hurt God's people or pollute his creation ever again. And once they are cast into the lake of fire, the way is now paved for God to make all things new, which we will see unfolding in the coming chapters. All of that said, how should we as Christians respond to this passage? Well, for starters, we should be encouraged by it because it lets us know that God is true to his word and God will one day vindicate his holy name and execute perfect justice on the unrepentant wicked, including those who persecuted his children. Back in Revelation 6, the souls of those who had been slain for Christ were crying out, how long, O Lord, how long before God judged those who had killed them and God told them, wait just a little while longer. But when the great white throne judgment of God is finished, these souls will see that their wait is over. Some people fear that belief, the Christian belief in God's coming wrath uh, runs the risk of making us Christians vengeful and wrathful people. But actually, the opposite is true. The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is the very thing that liberates you and, and me from ever feeling that we have to take matters into our own hands and exact vengeance on those that wrong us or hurt us. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And a passage like what we are looking at today assures us that we don't have to go vigilante on people, but we can leave room for the wrath of God as Paul calls us to do in Romans chapter 12. This passage should also awaken a deep gratefulness in our hearts to God for his mercy toward us. Every one of us, including myself, deserve to one day stand before the great white throne judgment of God to be judged according to our deeds and cast into the lake of fire. 
But Jesus is God's provision for us. Jesus has given us atonement for our sins through his shed blood at the cross. And Jesus now stands before God as our advocate. And because of Christ, we will not experience the lake of fire, but instead we will be ushered into the new Jerusalem. We will be ushered into heaven and be with God forever. And we will drink of the springs of the water of life forever with Christ in heaven. A passage like what we're looking at today should cause all of us at some point to fall upon our faces and praise God for the mercy that he has shown to us. That said, this passage should sober us deeply. It's a heavy thing to consider the fate of those who are outside of Christ. It should bring tears to our eyes like it did the Apostle Paul's in Romans chapter 9 and like it did to Jesus as he wept over Jerusalem in the Gospels. This passage reminds us of how high the stakes really are in this battle for the souls of men and women. And it should motivate us to share the gospel of Christ with others so that they might be rescued from the fate that we see described in the passage that we have looked at today. And I hope that this passage will grip our hearts and have this effect upon us even during these weeks of the Christmas season as we engage with family members and others who are lost. Some of you know who Penn Gillette is. Um, he's quite the engaging magician and television personality. He's also a vocal atheist but not of the Christopher Hitchens variety of atheist. After one of his shows in 2009, a Christian man came up to Penn Gillette and handed him a Bible with a message on the inside of the Bible that this man had written for Penn Gillette. And Penn received the Bible from this Christian man and he was so moved by this man's evident love for him that Penn Gillette produced a five or so minute video that you can find on YouTube where he talks about his encounter with this Christian man. And in the video, he spoke about this Christian man and he said, and I quote, this guy was a really good guy. He looked me right in the eyes. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to give me a Bible. This is an atheist talking. And he then went on to defend this Christian man's efforts to proselytize him. And he said, and I quote, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it might make it socially awkward, 
How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Unquote. That's his question. And it's a great question for all of us to answer in our own hearts. But let me flip what he has said and frame his thought to you as Christians in a positive way. If you are a Christian, then you have a Savior who left heaven's glories and came to earth in order to die on a cross, to be hung in shame from that cross and shed his blood so that he might save you from God's wrath and to deliver you into the salvation blessings of this life and the life to come and experiencing and walking in the good of this amazing love, you and I now have opportunity to move toward others and to point them to this Savior, Jesus Christ, and to tell them the good news of the victory that Jesus has accomplished and invite them to also believe in Jesus and have everlasting life through him. That's an amazing privilege that we have as Christians to tell others like somebody told us when we were drawn to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And if you're looking for a specific way to do this this week, I would encourage you to invite people to uh, our Christmas service next Sunday where they will hear the gospel of salvation through Jesus being sung and proclaimed from this pulpit. And we have flyers that are in the the lobby that we would encourage you to to pick up uh, and uh, and invite others to this service. There's even space on the back for you to write a personal note to somebody that you are giving this invitation to. And to make this maybe a little bit more compelling and enjoyable uh, for you to do, we're, give me a second. We're actually providing each family with two bottles of Martinelli's sparkling cider with an invitation attached, and you'll find these in the lobby as you, as you leave uh, this morning. Uh, and you are welcome as a family to pick up two of these and pray about who God would have you give these to. And you can write a personal note uh, on this flyer that is attached as you invite them to the service next Sunday where they will hear the gospel of Christ being uh, presented. And then also there's additional flyers even beside that. So don't just grab two things and go, but grab some flyers and invite people to join us for our worship service next Sunday. And beyond that, use every opportunity you can to engage people for Christ and to point them to the Savior who has saved you. C.S. Lewis said, joy, joy is the serious business of heaven. 
And it's the serious business of Christians on earth, too, who understand both the sweetness of God's mercies and also the righteousness of and reality of his wrath. And knowing these things about our God, let's fight for each other's joy during this Christmas season and let's labor for the joy of the lost by sharing Christ with them as well. Will you do that? Let's pray and let's ask God to help us to do this during the days of this week and beyond. Lord God, we're so thankful for all of your word that is profitable to us on so many levels. We're thankful for this passage today that reminds us anew of what we have been saved from. And it deepens our thankfulness for the salvation you have given to us. But with that joy and thankfulness that we have, there is a corresponding burden that is cultivated in our hearts of concern for those that are outside of Christ. And so we ask that you would use us, Lord, and embolden us and that you would empower our witness to others as we seek to tell them of Jesus and to point them to this one who has saved us and who can save and stands ready to save them if they would call upon him by faith and believe. I pray if there's any in this room this morning, Lord, that have never looked to Jesus Christ and fled to him as their strong tower of refuge, that they would find refuge in Jesus today that they would believe, that they would call upon your name, that they would pay homage to you now while they have the chance before it is too late. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. And may anyone in this room, Lord, that needs to look to you, Lord Jesus, and cry out to you and call upon your name for the salvation that only you can give. We ask, Lord, all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,